2 Peter 1, chapter, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which his power, his power has granted to us these precious and very great promises so that by them we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Let us pray. Oh God, we come to you because you are the only one to whom we can come. We pray to you because you are the sovereign God who can do something about our prayers. And we worship you. Lord, open our ears, open our hearts, open our minds so that we can hear what your word is saying to us, so that you are saying to us, so that we can then become the men and women of God that you have created us to be. Lord, remove from us those things that would distract us from your word so that we may hear and bring glory to you because you are worthy of all our praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I wonder how many of you have an aunt like mine. My aunt is, I think, 24-7 on Facebook. Know what I mean? Anybody? Yep. She's always got some new little quippy thing, some new video posting, and she's got, always got something that, when you're scrolling down, catches your eyes. You know, I've noticed that people love these cute little sayings, and they put nice little pictures behind them, And we just love these on Facebook because we are free immediately to forget them. Stay the course. Live, laugh, love, believe. My current favorite is marry someone who doesn't like the same cereal as you so you won't have to share. Now, obviously, there's nothing wrong per se with these beautiful little nuggets, But what makes them so popular is that we, as we read them, can turn them into anything we want them to mean. It gives us this nice little tingle as we scroll down to find the next narcissistic little photo that somebody has posted on our Facebook feed. Oh, stop it. Stop pretending. You know every one of us is guilty of that. A better idea one that's going to shock you that I'm saying that, is to find your wise sayings in the Bible. Now, I've got at least a couple reasons for this. One is that it's time-tested. I don't know what year Facebook was invented, but the Bible sayings have been going on a lot longer than uh, Facebook. The other reason why I would say find your wise sayings in the Bible is because you can choose to listen to the words of a 25-year-old pop singer or you can use words that have been written in blessing and enabling people for 3,500 years to live better lives. I'll let you decide. But the Bible, getting your wise sayings from the Bible is also good, not merely because we can't twist it and turn it into a little verbal 
pick-me-up Red Bull, but it is better because it is the Lord speaking to you where you are right now. Now, of course, this isn't new and is older than Facebook as well. In fact, before Facebook, I was in seminary, and everyone in seminary had to have a life verse. Does anybody here know anything what I'm talking about? Do you ever know somebody with a life verse? Well, everybody in seminary had them, including the Apostle Paul. Did you know that the Apostle Paul had a life verse? Yes, he did. It's Colossians chapter 1, 28 and 29. Paul says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul made it his life ambition to proclaim Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul lived so that everyone in his sphere of influence would be mature in Christ. Paul's life ambition gives us, in fact, our big idea today, and that is struggle for maturity in Christ. Now, in order to pursue Paul's ambition to let everyone and everyone know what the Bible says for their own maturity, Paul was willing to forsake everything else watching his favorite football team, or at least watching whoever it is on the NFC beat the only team worth beating because you hate them with all your guts. I don't know who would be like that. Paul was willing to forsake the pleasure of driving the pursuit of perfection in his Lexus. Paul was free to forsake his pharisaical need to impress everyone around him. Paul was free to just let it go. In fact, he says this in Philippians. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And it is this that causes us to need to struggle, to fight, to contend for maturity in Christ. Gaining maturity in Christ is a struggle if for no other reason than that we have to let go of our passion to collect more toys. And you and I know that our nation's motto is getting older is necessary, but growing up isn't. And that's why it's so hard to struggle for maturity. But Paul gives us some ingredients that make this progressive sanctification, this Christian walk, this struggle for maturity possible. The first is that we must suffer in a way that leads others to see the beauty and superiority of Christ in our lives. We must faithfully pursue God's word and thus know and be known by God And we must proclaim through our words and our deeds the work that Christ does in us to bring us to maturity in him. Let's see how Paul describes this maturity, this process in our passage. 
Colossians 1.24. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, his saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Let's get into it. Our first point is that suffering burns everything that hides Christ. We see this exactly in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. You and I must suffer in a way that shows others Christ's value to us as expressed by our life. Now, we're talking about sufferings. And sufferings that you and I will suffer is plain enough. Job knew 4,000 years ago, man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward. But that doesn't mean we need to be happy about it. So what is Paul talking about rejoicing? Paul here does not claim to be happy about his trials. Nobody's happy when we're hurting, or when someone that we love is hurting. What gives Paul joy is what our trials, our struggles, all the bad things that happen to us bring about. Among other things, the one thing that you cannot buy apart from suffering and pain and trials is maturity. James says much the same thing. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, both Paul and James know something that you need to know. Your trials, whatever they are, wherever you are, have a purpose. They're not just things that accidentally happen to you that some madman plans. But your trials produce growth. Your trials produce an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to go into you and to use this frustration and pain in such a way that you can see in yourself and others can see in you that you value Christ more than freedom from pain. 
This is because our suffering has a tendency, listen, to strip everything away, everything that doesn't matter. It takes away the blinders we have put over our eyes to hide Jesus, to hide our need for maturity. You know what blinders I'm talking about. Our comforts, our time fillers, our addictions, all of these things hide Christ. They prevent us from experiencing our need for him to feel how much we need God. And they also prevent others from seeing what does it look like to have a person living in front of us that really values Christ more than whatever game they're playing on their iPad. Now I'd be a fool if I didn't recognize in this room right now Some of you are dealing with cancer. Some of you are dealing with unemployment. Some of you are dealing with kids that are straying. That is suffering. And I don't want you to believe because of this quick treatment in this passage that the Bible is flippant about the pain that you're experiencing In fact, what I have found in my years of reading is that it's only the Bible that really gets into the nitty-gritty that is rich in discussion about the pain and the disappointment that all too often smacks us in the face. And Paul helps us in this very brief note to understand that these trials are necessary for my growth and for the growth of the people who are around you, watching you. Your suffering, no matter what it is that you are suffering, is a part of a process that the loving God is doing to make you more like Jesus. And choosing to believe that God is using these trials as a part of a loving process in you is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. And it is the fundamental idea that will undergird undergird your ability to become more like Jesus and to show others what it means to become like Jesus. Because what's the option? What's the other thing you can do? You can pour out all your vomit and filth on Facebook and kick and scream because of your, your trials and your sufferings. What do you get? People scrolling right by you. But in the midst of this all too brief discussion on pain and suffering, Paul throws in one of the most confusing verses in the entire Bible. Have you ever read a confusing verse in the Bible? Is anybody, anybody there? Okay, the rest, next, next week, for all you didn't raise your hand, we're going to talk about lying. One of the most confusing verses in the Bible, Colossians 1.24, in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, 
I want to say right at the top here, there is absolutely nothing missing from Christ's afflictions if what we are talking about is propitiation. Fancy word, I know. Let me define that. Propitiation is what Christ did on the cross to take care of your sins. And I am here to tell you there is nothing missing, there is nothing lacking with regards to propitiation. Jesus Christ completed the payment forever for everyone who would trust the promises of God for him in Christ. In fact, we know this is true because of Jesus' very last words on the cross, which were, it is finished. What is missing in the afflictions of Christ is not propitiation, but presentation. You see, God has appointed sinful, finite, weak human beings just like us, Christians, including the Apostle Paul and us, so that we can show the world the sufferings of Christ as we suffer and give glory to God through them. Again, this isn't a happy-go-lucky, ooh-hoo, I get to have cancer, or ooh-hoo, I get to be unemployed. No, it's recognizing in the midst of our pain that God is with us, and he is in us, and he is using these sufferings to transform not only us, but the people who are around us. That is why we are suffering so that everyone around us can see how much God has done to rescue you and me from my little infatuations, my little dillying with the things of the world. Let me give you an analogy of this that Paul himself uses. When Paul was in a Roman prison, he had a bunch of friends in Philippi, and these friends in Philippi were very concerned about Paul, so they sat around the room, they got together, and they put a bunch of money in their little wallet, and because they wanted to help Paul with his needs. Now, how much good would a wallet full of gold coins do Paul, who is in Rome, when the wallet full of gold is sitting in Philippi? Absolutely nothing. Was there anything wrong with the gift that the people in Philippi made for Paul? Absolutely not. But what was lacking was its presentation, was its ability for Paul to use that gold. And so they sent Epaphroditus to carry it to him. And Paul wrote a thank you card to them for sending him this money. And he says in Philippians 2.30, Epaphroditus nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your gift. He's not saying you should have sent another hundred gold coins. He's saying what was lacking was the fact that it was in Philippi, not in his hands in Rome. What is lacking in Christ's afflictions is not that there needed to be more afflictions. It's that there's many people all over the world and in the cubicle next to you at work who have never seen the afflictions of Christ. And they don't know that Christ died for them. Every single person in this room knows somebody. No matter what their race, 
no matter what their creed, no matter what their orientation, you know somebody who needs to have the afflictions of Christ presented to them so that they can repent, so that they can rejoice that their sufferings are not meaningless, so that they can rejoice because you loved your Savior enough and because you loved them enough to present it to them. And they could have peace themselves. And oh, my, my friends, my brothers and sisters, this is hard work. That's why you must struggle for maturity in Christ. And your struggles, your sufferings, your pain, your frustration in this sin-sick world is a major part of that presentation. Not only because you and I need to be mature and to grow into be the man or woman that God created you to be, but also because it's only when people seeing you suffer with an attitude that demonstrates that Christ is more important than your suffering this pain will people see you and they'll notice something different. Because everybody's got their problems. Everybody's got their difficulties. Everybody's got the things that they struggle with. But if you struggle with them with an eye on Christ instead of whatever toys you're missing, they will notice. Only when the people around you see that Christ and not political power, Christ and not creature comforts, Christ and not the ever-moving target of being right... God, save us from ourselves. Only when your attitude is Christ first with regards to all these things will the world be attracted to your Christianity. And my friends, right now as a culture, we are pretty unattractive. That's why you and me, we need to struggle for maturity in Christ. Now, in order to grow in this maturity, we need to learn to suffer well so others can see that we treasure Jesus. And in order to grow in maturity, we also need to pursue God in his word so that we will know and be known by him. This is your second point. You are a steward for Christ. Verse 25, Paul says, I became a minister of the church according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them, us, you and me, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glories of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You and I have a job, and that job is to faithfully pursue God so that we may know him and that we may be known by him. So two things. First, you are a steward, and then there is a mystery. You are a steward of Christ. You are a person to whom valuable things have been entrusted that do not belong to you. 
Another word for steward is a manager. A property manager is someone who doesn't own the property, but they take care of the property for the person who actually owns it. And that's apropos to us, because everything you have and everything you do are belongs to God. Because God is both the maker of your soul and he is the one who purchased your soul on the cross. Now there is nothing so offensive as what I just said. There is nothing in the Bible so offensive to every red-blooded human being other than you are owned by God. That really is what irks people. But you can argue the point all you want. The Bible makes it clear. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Oh, Lord, this is hard, and it is not only grasping, but living according to this principle, why it is so hard that we must struggle for maturity in Christ. We must fight for it. But Paul, this is the big picture. Paul, in this passage, narrows the picture a lot more. He's talking about being stewards of one thing in particular. What is it we're entrusted with? A mystery. What is a mystery? A mystery is something that God hid, he did not reveal in the past, but now he's using you and me to make this mystery known. And in this passage, what's new is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, I want to pause for a moment because today is the last Sunday, ladies, for you to sign up for the women's retreat that is going to happen on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, March 6th, 7th, and 8th. Right outside these doors, you can go and find where you can sign up so you can go to this. Now, I know that approximately 50% of us can't go to the women's retreat. And frankly, I wouldn't want to, but that's another point. So, ladies and men, let me introduce you to a book. I bought this book for all the ladies who will be leading the various um, uh, seminars uh, at the Women's Retreat, and it's called The Hope of Glory, 100 Daily Meditations on Colossians. Why on earth would you want a devotional book? Well, let me tell you why. Because every single one of us needs to be spending time every day in God's Word. Right? Right. And not every time you open God's Word is it 100% clear. Right? Right. So we need someone to help us see things that we otherwise couldn't see. But, but let me tell you, especially about Sam Storms. Now, I've only read that much of this particular book. But one thing that he does is he enables me to see valuable things in this word that I otherwise would have just let my eyes roll over. Have you ever seen the moon in a telescope? I mean, most of the days of your life, you've looked up and there it is. There's the moon. But if you ever get a chance to look in a telescope, it just 
blows up. It, it makes it so much more glorious. It enables us to see so much more of what we would have missed. And that is part of what reading a good devotional will do for you. Again, as opposed to just letting your eyes roll over the text. But there are a few of you in this room who do something called Bible doodle. And we have a picture of one right here. And this is a picture of a woman who was reading in her Bible and she found something that popped off the page to her. So she wanted to take the time to draw and tape and color and do things that I'm not creative enough to figure out. But she did that because she didn't want to just let the words pass over, the, the, her eyes pass over the words. Whatever it takes, coming up with a life verse so you can just pop it off in your mind whenever you come to it. This is what you need to do so that you're spending time meditating on God's word so that you know who God is because as you know God better, you will therefore love him and trust him more. So if you don't like the life verse idea, if the women's retreat doesn't apply to you, if you're not as creative as this, do whatever it takes to make sure that you're paying attention to what you're reading because if you're not, it's just a waste of time. Back to our passage. So what is the hope of glory? Oh, my friends, what is the hope of glory? It is the basis. It is the foundation of who we are as Christians. The hope of glory is what enables you and me to go through all the struggles in our life, to go through the mundane changing of baby diapers and all the things that we go through in this life. The hope of glory is the central foundation of what you and I need so that we may be the salt and light in a world that is corrupted and dark. And this glory, this glory we mistakenly believe or we think of as fame. And certainly, I guarantee you, I don't want to be famouser than whoever is getting his 15 minutes on Facebook right now. But glory, as the Bible uses it in relationship to you and me, has to do with being famous with God. Being known by God. Glory, as it pertains to you and me, will be hearing Jesus say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Francesca Battistelli perfectly communicates this truth when she sings, I don't need my name in lights. I'm famous in my Father's eyes. Make no mistake, he knows my name. But as with all things, there is an opposite to glory. It's what C.S. Lewis called being left utterly and absolutely outside, repelled, exiled, estranged, and finally and unspeakably ignored. 
This is hearing Christ say instead, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Hell is ignoring God's pleas to you. Hell is unspeakable punishment because hell is the natural result of not wanting God's love and grace. Hell is what happens when you ask God to leave you alone. And leave you alone is exactly what he does. My friends, hear the Lord speaking to you right now through Ezekiel's voice when he says, Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have pleasure in the death of no one, declares the Lord. So turn, my friends, right where you're sitting. If you don't have a relationship with the Lord, turn and live. So how do you live? How, how do you have this turning, this going to him so that all your sufferings, all your life finally mean something and they point you in the direction that you will eternally go? What makes the difference? Christ in you. The hope of glory This is the second half of the mystery Paul is talking about. And that is, as you go to God's word and you turn away from your own solutions that lead you inevitably away from him, you will be pointing in the direction that leads you to trust God's promises for you in Christ. And when that happens, God does something that no one else could do. God causes Christ to dwell in you because you are trusting him. And that is exactly why Paul can pray that God may great that God may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Again, This is the big idea of the book of Colossians. It's why the women's retreat is called Hope and Grace. It's because we need Christ in us. And it would take a month of Sundays to unpack this idea, to begin to unpack it. But for now, I simply want you to take a moment and absorb this truth. The almighty creator of the universe wants to be with you. The almighty creator of the universe chooses to be with you. And my friends, by the way, that is what makes you valuable. Not all this self-esteem garbage that's constantly pumped down our throats. It's nothing you do, nothing you are. You're valuable because God loves you. So turn to him and experience that value in a way that this world simply cannot find. Now absorbing this truth is a lifetime of struggle, a lifetime well worth 
the struggle of struggling for maturity in Christ. As stewards, you are responsible to know God through his word and you are required to trust that word. That's it. That's the whole enchilada. When you do, you will both know God and be known by him because he dwells in your heart, which makes this mystery Paul is talking about no longer mysterious. And when that happens, we will be able to proclaim our third point, this maturity, this completion, this perfection in Christ. Verse 28. Him, Christ, not me, certainly, save us. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, even to the point of being exhausted with all his energy, not my energy, his energy that he powerfully works within me. You and I must proclaim through our words and deeds the work that Christ does in us and through us to make us mature, to make us complete, to make us perfect in him. So let's quickly address the last three questions. The first is we must finally understand what this word mature means in the New Testament. And as I said right there, it can be translated in three ways depending on the context But the idea behind this word mature is the idea that this thing or this person fulfills its intended purpose. It completes what it's supposed to do. Something that does or is what it's supposed to do or be. So James is able to use this word when he says every good and perfect gift is from above. David is able to use this word in a sense when he says, I hate them with complete hatred. Ooh, that's not a friendly verse. But Paul uses it as he does here in Colossians when he says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil. But in your thinking, be mature. Of course, thinking is the one thing we don't want to do in our culture today. But to be mature is to fulfill God's plan for you. To be mature is to be the man or woman of God that he created you to be. My friends, to be mature is to be the person your heart longs for you to be. So what is involved in attaining this maturity? Back to our passage First, warning. We need to be warned. We need to have our attention drawn to the fact that we are straying from what is best for us. Second, we need teaching. We need illustrating in relevant ways what it looks like to be the best version of you possible. And third, we need wisdom. We need, we need to learn from those who are more experienced, those who more importantly know God better than you do right now, so that we can therefore love him and trust him more. Because as he gets near to you, as you get near to him, you will see that he is more 
love a bull than anything and everything you chase. He is more worthy of your trust than all the money, all the doctors, all the armies of the world can provide. So question two, how do we go about growing in this maturity? How do we progressively become more like Jesus? Well, I'll give you a hint. It is a struggle. It is a fight. It is something you need to contend with in your own heart and in the culture in which you breathe until the day you die. But it includes all the things that we've been talking about. Struggling in such a way that leaves no doubt where your affections and your longings and your desires lie. Struggling in pursuing God in the Bible, not merely allowing the words to pass under your eyes, but drawing close to Him so that you may know Him and be known by Him. It means proclaiming through all of our attitudes and actions that Christ is working in us to do this work of maturing us, perfecting us, and completing us in Him. And you do it, you struggle, you struggle to do your quiet time with the Lord. You struggle in loving, being patient with the person in front of you. You struggle in being loving to those around you because it is Christ strengthening you while you're doing it. So you look back and you think, man, I couldn't have done that. But you know what? It wasn't me. It was him working in me and through me. This is why Paul can say, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strengthened by the fact that you don't have to earn your salvation. That you can trust him to work in you and through you. The solution to all your problems, hear me, I'm, I'm not trying to be flippant here, but the solution to all your problems is to trust Christ. Yes, it will cost you much toil and labor with your hands and your mind. Yes, it will very often be painful and disappointing. But you can do it because as you are going through your own pain and disappointment, as you are going through your own toil, you know that it is Christ who is supporting you and guiding you and enabling you to do it. That is why you and I can struggle for maturity in Christ. Now, the conclusion to this sermon is going to be right here. So let me get to it as I invite the deacons to come forward and I pray for us. Lord Almighty, as we prepare to take of your table, I pray that you would meet us here, that you would come and indwell us and make us to be the men and women of God you've created us to be.